Enjoy the game by Lionel Burney. Chapter 14 Europe. The adventure began at the Intercontinental Hotel in Geneva on July the 6th, 1983. Eddie Plumley was there in his club blazer and tie to see the draw for the first round of the UEFA Cup. The balls were placed in the pot. Some of the giants of European football were in there. Real Madrid, Bayern Munich, Anderlecht, PSV Eindhoven, Glasgow Celtic, Internationale. And so were Watford. As soon as the draw was made, Plumley went to phone home. The girl on reception at Vicarage Road answered. Can you pass on a message? We've got Kaiserslautern and the first leg's away, he said. Oh, it's in West Germany. Right. This really was going to be a journey into the unknown. Predictably, the critics wrote off Watford's chances in Europe. The direct style might have punctured first division defences, but they said it would barely dent European teams taught to caress the ball rather than use it as a weapon. They were certain the brevity of Watford's stay in the competition would prove the point. Without Blissett's goals, Watford were also favourites for relegation. According to some, they were on the same trajectory as Swansea City, who had climbed all the way from the fourth division to finish sixth in the top flight, only to be relegated the following season. Watford had been worked out and were about to have their bluff called, so they said. It was a busy summer for Taylor, who started it by guiding the England under-18 team to the semi-finals of the European Youth Championships, where they lost to Czechoslovakia. Taylor withdrew from the role, explaining to Bobby Robson and the FA that he had enough on his plate with a European campaign to plan for. Then there was an end-of-season trip to China to fit in. By now it was clear Taylor was not going to be able to evolve the team gradually, but overnight was faced with a significant rebuilding project. Ross Jenkins had been released and joined Eastern Athletic, a club in Hong Kong, instead of Sheffield Wednesday. Then Blissett was sold and Jerry Armstrong followed by signing for Real Mallorca, ending a year of speculation sparked by his World Cup heroics. Liverpool's manager Bob Paisley had given Taylor a piece of advice. Always let a player's legs go on another manager's pitch. He knew he could not wring much more out of Pat Rice, who was 34. Despite the goal against Liverpool, Taylor was worried about Martin Patching's knee, having offered him a new one-year contract. Steve Sims was troubled by his knee as well. It was flaring up more regularly and needed careful management. And Ian Bolton's marriage was failing, and he was struggling to concentrate on football. If Taylor wanted new players for the UEFA Cup, he had until August the 15th to sign them, otherwise they would not be eligible until the quarter-finals. But Taylor refused to rush and made only one signing, someone he had been considering for a while. The plan was to use John Barnes as a centre-forward, so Taylor brought in Paul Atkinson from Oldham Athletic to play on the left. Atkinson was not an out-and-out winger. He had neither Barnes's pace nor trickery, but he had constantly impressed in the second division and Taylor had to be quick to stop Nottingham Forest getting him first. Atkinson met Brian Clough and Taylor on consecutive days, and says 
The contrast between the two could not have been starker. Graham knew all about me and how I played, and he had a very clear idea of how he wanted me to fit into his team, he says. On the other hand, Clough offered Atkinson a drink and said, We're going to the Reaper Barn, Hamburg's red light district, on our pre-season trip. You're not a puff lad, are you? Atkinson was out of contract, but when the two clubs failed to agree a fee, the transfer tribunal panel stepped in. It turned out to be a farce, because Watford were forced to pay £175,000, which was £25,000 more than Oldham had initially asked for. Perhaps it was an omen, because Atkinson broke his ankle in his first game for Watford, a practice match at Reading two days before the deadline for European registration. He put his foot up to block a clearance, got kicked and heard a crack. Three days before the first league match, George Riley arrived from Cambridge United. Riley was almost a clone of Ross Jenkins, tall and ungainly-looking at first glance, but with a light touch and a deceptive turn of pace. He twisted his ankle badly during his first training session and was ruled out of the opening game. Kenny Jackett was also injured, and Les Taylor was playing despite a painful knee after getting a kick on it at Oxford during pre-season. An alarming pattern was emerging. Coventry City gave Watford a dose of the Sky Blues on the opening day, winning 3-2 at Vicarage Road. With the injuries piling up and a severe shortage of attacking options, Taylor had to use Steve Terry, a centre-half, as an emergency striker. Rice and Bolton both scored own goals, and Richard Jobson had a perfectly good effort disallowed at the other end. It seemed nothing was going right. The fixture list had given Watford two home games to start with, offering a chance to make amends for the Coventry result. An hour before the kick-off against Ipswich Town, Steve Terry was sent home ill. Billy Hales, the physio, tracked Paul Franklin down in the players' lounge. "'You've not had a drink, have you?' Hales asked. "'No?' "'Good. Get yourself down to the dressing room. You're playing.' The game ended 2-2. A decent result, but one which sent the crowd home feeling anxious. Les Taylor aggravated his knee injury and was told he needed an operation. At St Andrews, Watford were abject as they lost 2-0 to Birmingham City. The match made Taylor realise that Patching's time was up and they agreed to settle his contract shortly afterwards. Rice pulled a hamstring. Watford were going through players quicker than they could patch them up. At least they managed to win a game before heading to Germany for their European baptism. After two draws and two defeats in the opening four games, they recovered from conceding an early goal to beat Notts County 3-1. County's new manager, Larry Lloyd, perhaps remembering the torrid time he had playing for Forrest against Jenkins and Poskett, suggested Watford would have to alter their game to avoid a drubbing in Germany. He said watching Watford fire it forward and his own team clear it time after time was like watching a tennis match. Two of Watford's goals came from set pieces, and the other was a deflection, and Lloyd reasoned they simply wouldn't be able to rely on defences being so generous in Europe. Lloyd had won two European Cups with Forrest and the UEFA Cup with Liverpool, so presumably he knew what he was talking about. Having exceeded all expectations the previous season, Taylor found himself having to manage them. We have our first win, he said, but there is no way I am going to say, now watch us go. We will have the sort of season we should have had last season, picking up results but being in the sort of position where you occasionally look anxiously over your shoulder. Getting into the top six is not on. 
The club was about to break more new ground, but they would have to do it with some untested players. Charlie Palmer, a 20-year-old right-back and scorer of that deflected goal against Notts County, had his chance, as did Richard Jobson, who had been at university playing part-time for Burton Albion in the Northern Premier League a year earlier. The day before flying to West Germany, Graham Taylor called out the names of the players who would be making the trip. Jimmy Gilligan half expected to be in the squad because he'd been on the bench for a couple of games, but it hadn't dawned on him that Riley had joined too late to play in the first three rounds. We ran through our pattern of play and set pieces, and I was up front with John Barnes, and all of a sudden the penny dropped, he says. I'm going to be playing in this game. Gilligan, who was 19, had moved from his family home in Stevenage and lived in digs on Radlett Road near Watford Junction. His head spinning, he went home and packed his bag, hung up his suit and club tie, ironed a shirt and sorted out his kit. The afternoon passed slowly, sitting there in the lounge with his landlady, Joyce Fitzsimmons. We used to sit and watch the horse racing on television, because that's what she liked to do, he says. When my mum got back from work, I gave her a ring to let her know. It was incredibly exciting. I came from a working-class background. My mum and dad worked to put food on the table. We didn't go abroad for a holiday. Our summer holidays were a week in Clacton and Yarmouth. Football had taken me abroad on pre-season tours, but this was different. I was going to Germany to play in a European game. The team flew from Luton Airport to Saarbrücken the day before the match. That evening they trained on the pitch at Kaiserslautern Stadium, the Betzenberg. The coach pulled up several hundred metres short of the ground and the players got out and walked the last bit. The stadium, smarter and more modern than almost any in England, was in the middle of a pine forest and sat on top of a hill. It wasn't until you came out of the trees that you could see it in its full glory. I was a bit in awe of the facilities, says Richard Jobson. This stadium appeared from nowhere and it looked a lot bigger than it actually was. I don't think it held many more than Vicarage Road, but it was imposing. I was shitting myself when we went to train on the pitch, says Palmer, who had the experience of just two first-team matches to call on. Flaming hell, we're going to be playing in this stadium tomorrow and it's going to be packed, he thought. Later that evening, the directors arrived back at the hotel after a welcome dinner hosted by their counterparts from Kaiserslautern. Jim Harrowell, a veteran of the Second World War, had been slightly subdued to be on German soil earlier in the day, but had relaxed a little after dinner. Walking with his limp, the result of a war wound, he made his way over to John Ward in the hotel bar. Look at this, John, he said, showing a pewter shield with the Kaiserslautern crest on it. I can't believe it. Not so long ago, they were bombing my house, and I was flying over their country trying to bomb theirs. Now they're giving me presents. As the Watford players tried to sleep, a small but determined group of the German team's fans staged a noisy vigil outside the hotel. There are all these klaxons going off, says Steve Sherwood. Just when you thought they'd got bored and gone home, they started up again. It was only because Kaiserslautern played their home league matches on a Friday night that Graham Taylor had come over to watch them. He left the scouting to Steve Harrison and John Ward. Seeing the opposition was valuable, but you had to decide what was going to help you most, he says. Do you take two days out, or do you spend that time with your own team? I decided it was more beneficial to work on what we were going to do, particularly with so many young players coming in. Kaiserslautern were no mugs. 
They had qualified for Europe for a number of years and reached the semi-finals of the UEFA Cup two years earlier. They had three outstanding players. The best was Hans-Peter Bruegel, a centre-half who was built like a chest of drawers and had been an accomplished pentathlete as a teenager. Bruegel had played for West Germany in the 1982 World Cup. Thomas Alofs, a striker, had also been in the German World Cup squad, while Andreas Bremer, the young left-back, was just starting out on a career that would lead to a World Cup-winning penalty against Argentina in 1990. Taylor did not fill his players with terrifying information about their illustrious opponents. I never remember being frightened because of anything Graham said, says Gilligan. The way he phrased things was always positive. He never made you fear other people. Graham would have done his work on Kaiserslautern, but it was always about what we were going to do. There'd be a sheet of paper on the table in the dressing room for the players to read, with a bit on each opposition player and what their strengths and weaknesses were. Some would read it. Others wouldn't touch it, but it was there if you wanted it. To an extent, the pressure was off because the pundits had written us off. We had a lot of young players and no one expected anything. All Graham expected was that we made the runs and stuck to the plan. The previous evening's visit had barely prepared the players for what the Betzenberg would be like. Although it was a small, compact stadium, the roof went all the way round and kept the atmosphere in, like the lid on a pan of boiling water. When it was empty, the players had not noticed how close to the pitch the seats and terraces were. Now it was full. They realised the supporters were breathing down their necks. I won't say it was intimidating, but it was a very intense atmosphere, says Gilligan. There were a lot of horns and hooters, but what surprised me was that they let people light flares. So there were lots of coloured flames and smoke which added to the intensity. A small band of Watford supporters had made the trip, some taking all day and all night to get there by coach. They saw Steve Sims, the captain, lead the team onto the pitch. Behind him came some very young faces. Of the team that started the game, seven were aged 21 or younger. It was men against boys. For all Taylor's talk of getting a result that gave them a chance in the second leg, Watford's first priority was to avoid a hammering. Kaiserslautern started at a ferocious pace. I was trying to catch my breath, thinking it had to calm down in a minute, says Gilligan. And before Watford had a foothold in the game, they were behind. Kaiserslautern picked them apart with stereotypical precision. Alofs back-heeled the ball to the winger, then swivelled away from his marker, Paul Franklin, and met the cross at the far post with a neat header. My dad videoed the highlights on telly, says Franklin, just as the commentator says, the young lad Franklin has his work cut out against Alofs. The bloke scores. We'd only played ten minutes. As we were getting ready to kick off, I looked across to the bench and Pat Rice was gesturing to keep calm and concentrate. It sounds like a really simple thing, but just seeing that took the heat out of things for a moment. If Kaiserslautern thought the goal would enable them to control the game and return to a more comfortable pace, they were mistaken. Six minutes later, Watford equalised. Jan Lohmann won the ball in midfield and fed it to Callaghan, who drove in the cross. Wilf missed it, and I just stuck my leg out, says Gilligan. It hit my leg and it went into the roof of the net. I thought it was going to go over, because I was quite close and it was just a reaction. There wasn't time to steer it anywhere. Watford had an away goal and grew in confidence. Just before half-time, 
Lohman put the ball in the net for a second time. The linesman gave a goal, but the referee ruled it out because he decided Jobson had fouled the goalkeeper. The number of free kicks was incredible, says Jobson. Compared to the English game, it felt like you couldn't tackle or put the other team under any pressure. Although Watford slipped behind early in the second half, it was the second of Torbjorn Nilsson's goals scored six minutes from the end that really stung. At 2-1, Watford were in a strong position, but 3-1 put Kaiserslautern in charge. I was gutted, because I thought that might be too much for us, says Wilf Rostron. But considering the side we had out, it could have been ten. I don't think they realised we had such a weakened team. For Palmer, the final whistle brought relief. I enjoyed it, but I was young, and the occasion passed me by. I should have savoured it a lot more, but to tell the truth, I was petrified. Taylor was upbeat despite the third goal. Now they have to come to Vicarage Road, he said. The task is not beyond us. We are quick learners at Watford, and I'm sure Kaiser Slauten would have liked a fourth goal under their belts. The German press shrugged and shook their heads. Watford had to win the second leg 2-0 against a team that did not need to attack. No chance. The tie was over. Watford's players showered, changed and headed to the airport to fly home. It was on the way back that it sunk in that I had scored Watford's first goal in Europe, says Gilligan. I knew that, even if I didn't play another game, I would always have a place in the club's history book. It was a strange feeling, because I was very happy to have scored that goal, but the result wasn't what I wanted. On the flight home, and I'll regret this until the day I die, I suppose, I made a mistake. Someone presented me with a bottle of champagne for scoring the goal, and the lads were egging me on to open it, so I did. Looking back, I realised that was a mistake for two reasons. Firstly, we'd just lost 3-1. We hadn't won the game, so there was nothing to celebrate. And secondly, that was a special bottle that should have remained unopened. It should still be at home now, as something to be cherished. I was a naive kid at the time, and had I been the gaffer, I'd have been furious. He definitely noticed, and I don't blame him for that. He didn't tear me down a strip for it, but I knew what he thought. Some of the looks he gave you made you realise he was thinking, you've made a big mistake there, boy. He threw me a look and I realised I got caught up in the elation of being the goalscorer. Gilligan was back on the bench for the next league game, a 4-0 win over Stoke. The following Saturday they lost 3-2 at home to Tottenham in a match made famous by Glenn Hoddle's chip from the edge of the area that had Sherwood backpedalling. And the injuries kept on coming. Taylor had already lost Sims and Franklin, so had to recall Ian Bolton, still struggling with the turmoil in his private life, and play him alongside Steve Terry. It was the sixth different partnership at the centre of defence in a season that was only nine games old. Jan Lohmann got a kick on the knee at Stoke and made it worse by playing against Spurs. He failed a fitness test on the morning of the Kaiserslautern game, had several operations and didn't play for the first team for more than a year. Losing Lohman was a blow. The obvious solution for Taylor was to play Barnes at centre-forward, move Jacket to left-back and put Rostrum wide on the left, as he had done in Germany. But he realised he needed goals, so he decided to go with a hunch. When Taylor got the news that Lohman wasn't going to be fit, he took Ian Richardson to one side and told him he was in the team. The 19-year-old striker would be making his first-team debut for Watford. Two days before the Kaiserslautern game, Richardson had been at the Den. 
Millwall's wreck of a ground in an uncompromising corner of south-east London. Even for a reserve fixture on a Monday afternoon with only a sprinkling of spectators, it was an uninviting place. I was up front with Richard Sendall, and the pair of us were getting kicked all over the place, he says. I'd never been booked or sent off before, but I lost it and lashed out. Then there was a bit of handbags, and I got sent off. Normally you expected to be hauled over the coals for something like that, but no one said anything afterwards, which was a bit strange. Now he knew why. Taylor had been pondering the possibility of picking Richardson. On the face of it, the idea of giving a 19-year-old striker his debut when the team needed goals was madness. It turned out to be a touch of genius. Richardson was small. The shirt hung off his shoulders in a way that suggested he'd pinched it from an older brother's wardrobe. But he was quick, and he had a great understanding with Gilligan. The pair had come up together from the youth team through the reserves. It was the classic big-man-little-man combination. Gilligan won the flick-ons, and Richardson darted in behind the defenders to latch onto them. Watford produced thousands of plastic horns and encouraged fans to bring flags and banners to create a European-style atmosphere. Taylor urged the supporters to remember Southampton and come with a sense of belief that the team could do it. The Kaiserslautern team turned up wearing jeans and T-shirts, providing an added motivation. It was as if they thought they had it won, and had come for a jolly, says Ward. As they stood in the tunnel waiting to go out, Gilligan turned to Richardson and said, We're going to win this. Would they win it by enough? They were one nil up after four minutes. A long kick from Sherwood was flicked on by Barnes. Richardson was on his way before Barnes's feet had even left the ground, and he darted into space behind the Kaiserslautern defenders. I gambled on where the ball would go and I was right, he says. The finish was clinical. You don't have time to think about what it means, you just shoot. Three minutes later, Watford had a second and Kaiser Slouten's advantage was gone. Just as he had done against Notts County, Charlie Palmer pushed up into the penalty area. His low, driven cross hit a defender and bounced into the net, proving that deflected goals count even in the purified atmosphere of European competition. Level on aggregate, but with the advantage of an away goal, Watford had just the 83 minutes to hang on. It was actually the worst possible score, because we'd have been out if Kaiser Slouten had scored, says Jobson, and the temptation was to take what we had and sit back. If we'd done that, we might have been in trouble, so we just had to keep going forward. There were some scary moments, and we rode our luck a bit, but Steve Terry was a colossus for us at the back. He got in the way of everything, or stuck out a leg. Midway through the second half, Jobson played the ball into the penalty area and Richardson slid in to send the ball looping high over the keeper and into the net. The job still wasn't quite done. A goal for the German side would have meant extra time, and although Watford were confident their fitness would make them a match for anyone if a game went beyond 90 minutes, they didn't want to put the theory to the test. Taylor sent John Ward over to the touchline on the Schrodel side to make sure the players on the far side of the pitch stayed focused and organised. You're not really supposed to do that. You're supposed to stay on the bench, says Ward. I was crouching down behind the advertising board so the linesman couldn't see me. I was worried I was going to get myself banned from Europe, but I was over there shouting at Ian Richardson, Charlie Palmer and Nigel Callahan for the last 20 minutes, telling them to get tucked in. 
Taylor described it as the greatest result of his career. We have tried not to bleat about the injury situation, he said afterwards. Asked whether the decision to give Richardson his debut was a moment of inspiration, he replied, You could say that, although it's equally true that he was the last one I had left. The following morning, Taylor called his two-goal hero into the office for a chat. He congratulated Richardson, told him to commit the details of the day to memory, and advised him not to get carried away. As Richardson headed towards the door, Taylor called him back. Oh, Ian, he said, about that sending off at Millwall. We're fining you fifty pounds, although you won't notice it because of the win bonus from the Kaiserslautern game. The draw for the second round pitted Watford against Levski Spartak of Bulgaria. Watford actually came out of the hat second, but because Sofia's other club, CSKA, had been drawn at home first in the European Cup, they switched the two legs round. In October, Watford travelled to Tel Aviv to play a friendly against the Israeli Olympic team. The club was receiving all manner of lucrative offers and, in its bid for self-sufficiency, took some of them up, even if they fell during a busy period of the season. This game served a purpose because Taylor wanted to practice something that was completely alien to him, going away from home and playing for a draw. With the first leg at Vicarage Road, Taylor wanted to take a 2-0 lead to Bulgaria, and he realised that in Europe the time might come when you had to pull down the shutters and hold on tight. Watford lost the friendly in Israel 1-0, and there was barely a shot on goal. Steve Harrison travelled to Sofia to see what Levski Spartak were like. He was invited for a meal before the game and asked his interpreter what they were eating. Brenos animo, said the interpreter. It wasn't until he'd cleaned his plate that Harrison realised he'd been eating brain of animals. The effectiveness of his scouting mission was compromised by Bulgarian hospitality. The team sheet was all in Cyrillic letters, so I couldn't understand a word, and they gave me a good few shots of this powerful local spirit, he says. When I reported back, I said, Well, Gaffer, all I can tell you is that the blonde lad and the fella at the back are both good players. Watford hammered the Bulgarians in the first leg, but could draw only 1-1. Nigel Callaghan missed a penalty early in the first half. The goalkeeper moved before the kick was taken, which was not allowed in those days, but the referee did not order it to be retaken. Taylor was irritated that Callaghan chose to place the kick when he was reminded before the game to opt for power if Watford were awarded a penalty. John Barnes hobbled off inside the first twenty minutes, and although Rostron gave Watford the lead as the first half drew to a close, they were punished for not taking one of their other chances. Any team from Western Europe travelling behind the Iron Curtain in search of a victory was asking for a lot. On their own patch, Levski Spartak were likely to be very difficult to beat. Sofia was a pallid place. The buildings all looked the same, and there was little hint of joy in the faces of the people. Seeing queues and queues of people at the shops was a real shock to me, says Gilligan. Most of the shops were empty, anyway. We ate something in the hotel, and we were told afterwards it was horse meat, says Neil Price, and one night we had this grey, watery soup which had a boiled egg at the bottom. The food wasn't the best. The hotel was pretty drab, and we weren't allowed out. Because of a different system of plugs and power sockets, Nigel Callaghan had left his computer game and stereo tape player at home. 
Without his music or anything to do, he was going up the walls, says Ian Bolton, his roommate. Callahan longed to go out, but there was little to see or do, anyway. When Watford trained at the stadium the night before the game, they found Levski had opened the gates and allowed at least 10,000 supporters in. They were hissing and booing while we were training, which we didn't feel should have been allowed, says Ward. Roy Clare, the kit man, sat and watched the Levski players marching round the ground in their army uniforms and said to the players, Here, this is what we should be doing. This had sort some of our lads out. Again, Taylor had to make do and mend. He changed the formation slightly to play three in midfield. Jobson, Bolton and Rostron played in the centre, but Callahan, Richardson and Barnes were encouraged to drop deep to avoid Levski's man-markers. At left-back, 19-year-old Neil Price made his debut. It was a bewildering experience. With 60,000 Bulgarians whistling and hissing whenever Watford had the ball, the atmosphere was hostile. Fireworks were being let off all round the stadium, which was a simple but vast concrete bowl. It was absolutely fierce. It was like walking into a gladiator's arena, says Bolton. On the pitch, Levski had them on the ropes. After half an hour they'd scored a penalty, missed a penalty, and we'd cleared a couple off the line, says Price. I thought we were going to get murdered, but somehow it was 1-1. Levski won their first penalty after five minutes when Jobson fouled Spazov, who scored from the spot. I dangled a leg out, he says. There wasn't any diving in the English game in those days, but they would collapse under the slightest contact and roll around. Three minutes later, Callahan hit a stunning shot from 25 yards to level the match and wipe out the importance of Levski's away goal. Jobson gave away another penalty, but this time Spazov hit the top of the bar. When they missed the second one, I felt it was going to be our night, he says. All over the pitch, Watford players were engaged in their own battles, and they got little help from the referee, who also had a habit of giving Levski corners when they should have been Watford goal kicks. Wilf and I were in midfield and we had to make sure we gave as good as we got, says Bolton. They were nasty, but we were nastier. We were hacking and chopping them, and some of the challenges from both sides were awful. It sounds terrible, but we had to fight them to stop them getting on top of us. I've never played in a game like that. Watford held on throughout the second half, by which time the Levski players had resorted to violence. At one point, Richardson was fouled five times in a row as they tried to kick lumps out of the Watford players. As soon as he picked himself up, they kicked him again. In extra time, the aggression had spread to the terraces. Dotted all around the stadium, the Levski supporters had started fires. Bottles were being hurled onto the pitch. Watford won a corner with five minutes of extra time left. As Callahan went across to take it, a glass bottle smashed on the running track right next to his feet. He decided to take the kick as quickly as he could. The ball got flicked on, and Rostron dived in at the far post to score with a header. Two minutes later, Richardson put the game beyond doubt. As soon as the whistle went, the Watford players ran straight for the tunnel. Up in the stands, surrounded by unhappy Bulgarians, the Watford directors wondered how the Levski officials would react. Would they be on the receiving end of a poisoned umbrella tip? Because we were going to the airport straight after the game, we'd taken our luggage with us to the stadium, says Eddie Plumley. We went back to the room where we'd had a pre-match drink with the Levski directors. Our bags were left outside and the door was locked. We knocked but no one answered and no one was around. We waited 
thinking they'd be along in a moment, but no one came, so we just got on the coach and headed to the airport. They celebrated on the plane home instead. The pilot came out and whispered to me that we couldn't land at Luton because of fog and that we had to go to Manchester instead, he says, and they carried on celebrating on the coach south, arriving home after five in the morning. That was one of the finest team performances, says Taylor. Callaghan was absolutely brilliant that night. It was a wonderful performance in such difficult circumstances, and he played with a maturity that he didn't always show. Or, as Jacket puts it, I was injured so I didn't go to Bulgaria, but I remember Callaghan telling me how well he'd done when he got back. Watford were in the third round of the UEFA Cup, but had dropped into the relegation zone at home. They were handed a bad draw. Sparta-Prague of Czechoslovakia, which meant another trip to Eastern Europe, this time in the depths of winter. Just before the first leg against Sparta-Prague, Watford travelled to Manchester United. It was another tough lesson for Charlie Palmer. We were going out to warm up, and I got to the top of the tunnel, had a look out and thought, bloody hell, instead of going out onto the pitch, I went back to the dressing room. I completely froze. I should have gone out there and had a look around, but I didn't and I went out for the game and had a complete nightmare. I realised then I wasn't ready, and I needed to go back and brush up on a few things. Watford were thumped 4-1, and the following week Taylor signed another right-back, David Barsley, from Blackpool. Having made his mind up about Palmer, Taylor gave Nigel Gibbs, who had only just turned 18, his debut against Sparta Prague. The Czech team were too good for Watford. They took a 2-0 lead in the first half at Vicarage Road, and although Watford fought back to draw level, they conceded in the last minute. This time, it really did look like an impossible job. By the time the second leg came round, there were so many injuries, Taylor made light of the situation by taking out an advert in the Times, advertising for players. Many vacancies at First Division Football Club for professional footballers able to work on Saturdays. Previous experience, not essential. I hoped it showed we were dealing with it with a bit of humour, instead of using it as an excuse, says Taylor. It was an incredible run of bad luck. We had injuries galore. We looked at everything we were doing, and had we been picking up injuries in training, we would have worried, but we were getting knocks in games. It was just one after another. The squad was changing. Taylor had added Lee Sinnott, a defender from Warsaw, and Bardsley, both of whom had played for his England youth team during the summer, and Riley and Maurice Johnston a striker from Partick. Had Watford reached the quarter-finals, they would all have been eligible to play. As the players boarded the coach to the airport, Taylor had a quiet word with Ian Bolton to tell him Brentford had made an offer. Do you want to go? he asked. Am I playing for you in Prague? asked Bolton. No. Well, I think I'll go then. Prague was freezing cold and there was snow on the pitch when Watford trained on it the night before the game. The surface was good enough, despite the snow, but come the day of the game the pitch had been heavily rollered so it was like an ice rink. In the dressing room, Neil Price asked Roy Clare for a long sleeve shirt. I used to like us all to wear long sleeves or all wear short sleeves, says Taylor. I bet I was horrible at times, but we were Watford and I wanted us to look smart. I wanted them all to look the same, all with three hoops on the tops of their socks, not some with three, others with two.
It was a rule that we played with our shirts tucked in. Roy knew this, and so when Neil asked for a long-sleeved shirt, he said, Who do you think you are, eh? We're in short sleeves. I said to Roy quietly, It's minus five out there. I think we can let them have long sleeves if they want. Roy picked up a shirt and chucked it at Neil and said, There you go, you big softy. Watford's players decided to wear rubber-studded boots, the same ones they used on the AstroTurf at Loftus Road, but even during the warm-up they struggled to keep their footing. In the tunnel, someone looked down and noticed the boots the Sparta players were wearing. They were old-fashioned boots, says Jobson, but you could see they had spikes on the bottom. We couldn't stand up, but they could stop and turn and do what they liked, says Rostron. I am sure they were illegal studs. Sparta scored three times in the first eleven minutes, then got another just before half-time. Even allowing for the fact they were used to the conditions and had more effective footwear, Sparta-Prague were a superior team. Watford were down to the bare bones. Ten of the thirteen players they used that night were aged twenty-one or under. Francis Cassidy was making his debut. Between them, Cassidy, Gibbs, Franklin, Jobson, Price... Richardson and Sterling had made fewer than seventy first-team appearances. They were very green. I looked out there on the pitch, and they were just kids, says Taylor. Really, it was a combination reserve team that played in Europe. It was a shame that, for one reason or another, the team that finished runners-up did not get a chance to play in the UEFA Cup. Near the end, Taylor slapped Billy Hales on the leg and said, well, Bill, it looks like the European adventure is coming to an end. Further along the bench, the team's doctor, Peter O'Connor, said, Oh, come on, Graham, don't give up yet. There's still a couple of minutes to go. We all started laughing, says John Ward. The doc wasn't trying to be funny. He meant it in all sincerity. We were 7-2 down on aggregate, with two minutes to go, and we needed five goals, but he was refusing to give up hope. That was the Watford way. It's a good job we weren't being filmed or photographed because it would have looked like we were laughing and joking as we went out of Europe. But that moment summed up the whole experience and the way Watford approached things. End of chapter 14 Next time, meet Big George and Little Mo, Graham Taylor's next little and large striking double act.